The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. Slightly different show for you today due to the restrictions on what can be reported while the by-election's taking place in Rochdale. So instead, we're going to bring you up to date on a roller coaster 24 hours in US politics. Kriti Gupta is going to talk us through what's been happening with Donald Trump, his growing dominance across the Republican Party, and why the US Supreme Court's decision to rule on his bid for immunity may be better news for the former president than you might think. Plus, we've got some very depressing stats about a story around equal pay here in the UK. But first, we wanted to bring you an interview which relates to one of the topics that we bring up quite often here, and this is the health of the UK stock market. You might have heard us talk before about how the London market isn't attracting many new companies to list here. It was considered a really big blow when the chipmaker Arm, for example, decided to list in the United States rather than in London, while other companies like the buildings firm CRH are ditching their London listing and transferring to the US instead. Well, the chief executive of the London Stock Exchange now says that things are looking up on the listing front. David Schwimmer, the CEO of the London Stock Exchange Group, has told Bloomberg that the IPO pipeline looks much more encouraging. Just this week, we were reporting that the Chinese fast fashion giant Shein was considering a listing in London. So that comes up in this conversation, too. If that happened, that would be a huge boost to the London market. So here is the CEO of the London Stock Exchange Group, David Schwimmer, speaking to Bloomberg's Anna Edwards, Kriti Gupta and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg TV a little earlier. They started by discussing the group's latest financial results with profits of £2.9 billion for last year, which was in line with estimates. I think we've had a very strong 2023 and uh, revenue growth of over 8%. You look at how this business has performed over the last several years, it has been a dramatic improvement based on the integration of Refinitiv and we've taken that business uh, and really in many ways tripled the growth rate of that business over the last few years. So top line over 8% now, broad-based growth across each of the businesses. We've met or exceeded all of the Refinitiv integration targets and the broader transformation of LSEG is very much on track. So really in the, the next few months we should have pilot versions of the product that we're building with Microsoft in the hands of our customers. Uh, so I'm very pleased with 2023 and really excited about 2024 and the direction we're going in. Okay, so where does the pro- surprise come in 2024, David? You, you just run through some of the things that are going to be happening in 2024. We, we've got a pretty good handle on what is happening there. What do you need to do to keep this share price moving higher this year? Is it going to be some of the things you've just laid out? Is it going to be returning money to shareholders? What is it that you think is going to make the, the material difference 
in getting the stock higher in 2024. We'll talk about your, your pay packet in just a moment. It is rising significantly. And I, I, I'm hearing questions from shareholders about kind of the disconnect between those two. Can you get the operational performance of this business higher to justify what you are signaling in terms of what you think you are worth? I think what I and LSEG are focused on is consistent execution and consistent delivery. And if you look at what we have delivered over the last few years, it's a dra dramatic transformation of LSEG. Uh, and we are now one of the world's leading financial market infrastructure and data providers. We operate on a global basis across multiple asset classes and across the trade lifecycle. There's no other company in the world that has the breadth and depth of offering that we have across information services and across financial market infrastructure. Uh, and this is a business that has really undergone a significant transformation, and we look forward to continuing to deliver on that transformation. And that's what our shareholders are expecting of us. Uh, David, one area of your business seems to be at least narratively under pressure right now, and that's on the listing side. There's a story developing, covered much in the financial uh, uh, press and elsewhere, that companies don't want to list in London anymore. They want to go to the United States. They think they'll get better valuations in various sectors over there. What's your pushback? As I've said on a number of occasions, this is a, a narrative that has been, I'll say, overly simplified and overplayed a bit. The IPO market for uh, exchanges around the world has been pretty grim for the last couple of years, including in the US. Uh, we are now seeing a much more encouraging IPO pipeline in London. Uh, it is more encouraging, more activity, more companies thinking about IPOs than we've seen in a few years. And so I am looking forward to uh, seeing those companies mm. come to list in London. London continues to be by far uh, the most successful and leading exchange in Europe. And we compete on a global basis. Yeah. Well, keep competing on a global basis is a good place to go next then, because we've heard uh, that Xi'an over in China uh, uh, might decide it wants to list in London. It clearly is a complicated story. Maybe you can tell me your thoughts on that one specifically, or if you can't talk about that one specifically, about China and that being the source of IPOs for the London market. So I'm not going to be able to com comment on any particular uh, specific listing, uh, but I think one thing to recognize about London is that we are the most international capital center, and the London Stock Exchange is the most international exchange in the world. So companies that are looking to access markets globally uh, will find a welcome home in London, and we've seen that over uh, hundreds of years in terms of our history, and I expect that to continue. David, as, as fair as that is in terms of the listings, there is a question among even traders and investors that even after companies list, there's a question of liquidity, something that your competitor, uh, the Euronext CEO, for example, is tackling. How is the LSE going to be tackling the liquidity issue that are coming up? Well, first point I would make is uh, there is not a significant liquidity issue for uh, most equities on the London Stock Exchange. If you look at LSEG, for example, our own company, uh, we had a our significant shareholder in the Blackstone Consortium selling down over 7 billion pounds of our equity last year. And our stock price was up over 30% over the course of that yeah. time period. And there was no question about the liquidity, no question about uh, investor appetite for that. So I think it's important to, to keep this in perspective. Having said that, over the long term, I think there is an opportunity, and there's been yep. a lot of discussion about this in the UK market, around the UK pension sector. 
and the opportunity to have UK pensions uh, consolidated, yep. becoming bigger, more focused on the equity market, and allocating more of their capital to UK equities. I think that's a great opportunity over the Dave, medium and long term. David, one final quick question, if you could answer with a kind of yes or no. Do you think the LSE group would trade on a higher multiple if it listed in the United States? No. So that was David Schwimmer, London Stock Exchange Group CEO there, giving a very succinct answer to the end to Guy Johnson on Bloomberg TV. Of course, this focus about firms shifting their listings from London to the US. I mentioned the Arm Holdings uh, controversy as it then was, despite the lobbying that had happened here to try and get them to list in London. There's also a lobbying effort happening around relaxing UK listing rules as well. So the likes of Shein, if that were to come through, would be something that would really help as well. But it's worth just reflecting for a moment on how much of a slump this has been for London companies raised just a billion dollars on the London Stock Exchange last year. That was the least since 2009. So remarkable, even within a global drought of these sort of share listings as well. There's also another issue about why London's become less attractive for these sorts of listings, and that's been to do with a glut of alternative funding coming from the private equity world. There's also some of the recent stock listings in London haven't been great. The likes of Deliveroo, Dr. Martins, or even Ithaca Energy as well. They haven't been uh, the success that many would have hoped, and that's led other countries or other companies rather to shy away from the thought of listing in London. So an interesting story around the UK stock market we thought we'd bring to you on this particular day. Now we're going to take a trip across the pond and go to US politics. The US Supreme Court has agreed to rule on Donald Trump's bid for immunity from criminal prosecution over interference in the 2020 election. The decision raises the prospect that any trial of the former president could face a long delay, potentially until after the November election. Now, it comes as Mitch McConnell has announced that he's stepping down after leading the Senate Republicans for more than 17 years, a surprise announcement. But that decision sets up a fierce succession battle that'll be driven by loyalty to Donald Trump. So is the US Republican Party now Trump's party? We've hauled in Bloomberg TV's Critty Gupta for analysis. Critty, I want to start with this news that the Supreme Court's decision to take up Trump's bid for immunity from criminal prosecution raises the prospect a trial to hold him accountable could face a lengthy delay. Why can't the courts just move this along faster? It kind of comes down to scheduling, but there's also an incentive not to move this along faster. Look, they, the criticism of the Supreme Court uh, that really dates back to President Trump and, and the people he chose to kind of stack is that they are leaning Republican anyway. Um, of course, the Supreme Court is meant to be impartial, but it is not at the moment in that there is a incentive here that if you are supporting the GOP frontrunner, which is uh, looking to be President Trump at the moment, then you do start to see some sort of incentive about how they might rule in his favor. But perhaps they don't even want to create that kind of possibility when they're under so much other scrutiny for decisions that have come out around things like abortion, uh, gun control, even in terms of state versus federal rights along uh, the southern border. The Supreme Court actually does have a lot on their plate, not to mention health care, for example, which remains a major sticking point for contenders. So the idea of pushing back some sort of decision on President Trump past the election in some ways could be viewed as being impartial by the Supreme Court. So there is an incentive to do that. Of course, they're not trying to. They are trying to get to this as fast as they can. Um, but the, the reality is that the timing just may not line up. 
it's. I think we could all be forgiven for losing track of which legal battle we're talking about when it comes to Donald Trump. So c- can you just remind us what this particular decision is about? Because it's not actually a decision that we've ha- had from the screen board. It's just the question of, of when they're going to think about it or rather consider it. Right. So there, there's a couple, um, t- to be fair. Uh, so, so the latest one that we're trying to keep an eye on right now is whether or not President Trump can be on ballot. So this is coming in the context of uh, Super Tuesday, which is coming up uh, in, in the U.S. election, which is basically when a lot of states individually vote for whether or not President Trump will ultimately be the GOP frontrunner, the mm. GOP candidate. It also, of course, has other things like voting on certain uh, laws and procedures in these various states. But the question for now three states, uh, Colorado, Maine, and now Illinois, is whether or not President Trump can actually be on the ballot. And it all comes down to one clause in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, and the word insurrection. Now, this comes to no surprise, and I think to no country's surprise, that if you have any individual who is accused of treason, they should not be the leader of that country simply as a function of loyalty. Now, that is put in the Constitution under the word insurrection. So some of the criminal charges that President Trump has uh, been convicted of in relation to his role around January 6, 2021, the riots on Capitol Hill, They've come just short of that word insurrection. So the arguments in the Supreme Court, and I should mention the trial has not began yet. They've only heard those initial arguments, is that on the one hand, because he has been convicted in a criminal court of that uh, of his role, therefore he should not be on the ballot. But the other side of the argument is simply that, well, he hasn't been convicted of insurrection yet, and therefore this clause does not apply to him. It also potentially doesn't apply to the presidency if, and this is where the timing really matters here, because if you don't make a decision by the presidential election, and if big if President Trump is elected, then you do have uh, this question of whether President Trump as president can give himself immunity. So on balance, regardless of immunity, we can talk about that later. Are these court balance battles working for Donald Trump? Because he's bleeding money, but he's always in the spotlight outside the courthouse. So surely there are pros and cons. There are pros and cons. So uh, the major con here is, as you said it, Lizzie, it's the money. He is bleeding uh, in terms of legal battles. And that's actually where President Biden has the edge. If you are indeed convinced that ultimately the presidential election will be between President Trump and President Biden, we should mention that that hasn't been confirmed yet, given the nomination process. But that's 100 percent right. And that President Biden is still able to kind of soak up a lot of big donors. So is Nikki Haley, by the way, whereas President Trump is actually lagging among the three in terms terms of just how much money he's actually able to put towards his campaign, given that most of it is driven by grassroots conservatives, as opposed to kind of these big uh, billionaire Wall Street donors, for example. That being said, the big pro on that is even though he is dealing with all these legal battles, his base doesn't seem to care. In fact, his base is continuing to grow. And and just from firsthand experience, um, when you do cover these trials in person, these arraignments, for example, in the Southern District of of New York and Manhattan, uh, where a lot of President Trump's uh, court cases have come out, there are massive uh, rings of supporters who actually come out and support him kind of going against what a lot of people are viewing as as a biased system against Donald Trump to the point that he's actually leaned into it. And um, even when he first announced his campaign, released his own mugshot as as kind mm. of a campaign merchandise item. Yeah, interesting to point to the latest Bloomberg News Morning Consult poll of swing state voters on this issue as well. As many as half of them say that they would be unwilling to vote for Donald Trump if he's convicted in any of the criminal cases which in which he faces charges as well. So there is a, a public opinion impact of this as well. But I think that speaks to your point that whereas some people it might actually embolden some Trump supporters, there are other voters who could be put off 
if he were to be convicted. And that's why the Supreme Court decision is so important, right? Because if they do vote one way or the other, the Supreme Court could, in theory, based on this poll, kind of influence the outcome of the election. That's the exact thing that they don't want to do. They're interested in hearing the arguments and kind of going through all of the constitutional forces at a time when we're really in unprecedented history when it comes to this. We've never had a former president have to really deal with these kind of criminal consequences. Um, This is also something that's being viewed, by the way, as some sort of referendum in a lot of ways on not only Joe Biden, who is the Mm. incumbent president, but on President Trump, who is the former president. Remember, it is kind of a major taboo in in United States politics to have a one-term president. And right now, the Democratic frontrunner, Joe Biden, and the Republican frontrunner, President Trump, are both one-term presidents at this moment. So let's dig into as well this surprise announcement that Mitch McConnell is standing down as party leader, not as a senator, I should say. It looks like the runners and riders to change, to replace him, all of whom happen to be called John, by the way, are much more pro-Trump than Mitch McConnell. How quickly is it going to change the dynamics in Congress when you've got this split between the corporate friendly establishment on the one hand and the young populist wing on the other? Well, the read through is quite simple. It's are you for Trump or are you against Trump? And that seems to be what it's coming down to when it comes to things like aid, for example, or bipartisan deals around government shutdowns that would then influence things like defense spending to even Israel and and the Middle East, their humanitarian aid, for example, uh, to to Yemen, to Gaza, etc. There are international repercussions for this in that every time a bipartisan deal has been negotiated, the kind of contingency it lands on is what's going on in the southern border of the United States with Mexico. And the problem with that is that even though we get close to that bipartisanship, we are in an era of of a GOP party that really is kind of being tracked as either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. And if you were anti-Trump, which seems to be kind of the the, the banner or or the... um, I'm trying to think the branding, for example, that a lot of previous Speaker of the Houses have had. There is fear that as president in 2025, if he indeed is elected, it could kind of work against him. Now, Mitch McConnell stands out as one of the few people in the GOP at the moment in the Senate who do not have that bias towards President Trump. And he, for the record, during the actual Trump presidency, was very quiet in terms of speaking against Trump or for Trump and actually got criticism from both sides of the aisle for doing that, just given his, his record in in Senate and in U.S. politics. That being said, he has since come out and said that Trump's role in those Capitol riots was inappropriate. And he has still, even as the GOP leader in Senate, has not endorsed President Trump, despite a lot of his colleagues having do so. Now that he steps down, though, it creates a vacuum that whoever replaces him is more likely than not to be a Trump supporter. Yeah. And given the fact that we have the the, the three Johns that have declared already for this role that are that are our people who are Trump supporters. I mean, what does that mean for functioning of government in the United States? Congress is so divided. We can talk about the, the latest government shutdown deal next. But this is a question that someone like Mitch McConnell was able to play the system. He had been there for a very long time. He knew everyone around him. He was able to build alliances where necessary to achieve his aims. If that switches to a more Trump supporting Senate leader, is that a question that we're going to end up with? Even Is that possible? Even more dysfunction in the congressional system? Yeah, many would see Mitch McConnell as the last sane person in the asylum. 
I think it's a fair concern. Absolutely. And and uh, the best example that I, I can give of, of early evidence of that happening is just the latest uh, two bipartisan deals we've had around government shutdowns, mm-hmm. where you have had Mike Johnson get a lot of whiplash from his own party for actually even negotiating with, with the Democrats, even though he has included pieces of the aid towards uh, the, the efforts in the southern border, aids um, towards uh, Ukraine, etc. He is still viewed by a lot of his colleagues within the party as perhaps bending too closely towards Democratic um, ideals simply by being bipartisan. And that's actually something that Joe Biden, the president of the United States, has come out and said that every time they get close to this bipartisan deal, there seems to be this pull away from a lot of GOP supporters the minute that President Trump comments on the actual deal, despite him not even being in office anymore. So they have got another deal, another sticking plaster. What would it take to end this constant sputtering along between the threats of total shutdown once and for all? I mean, um, uh, a, a good budget. I, I uh, th- that's a really solve hard... the problem yes. for us, Chrissy. Uh, you're welcome. Um, and and this is why I'm not president. Um, yes. This is uh, <laughs> um, the, this is the this is the core of the issue, right? So so they've gotten close to uh, a 1.6 1.59 trillion dollar uh, spending budget is what they've decided on. They decided that in January for the entire year. The problem is where a lot of that funding comes from because at the moment it's a one percent cut across all departments. So this late latest kind of uh, shutdown aversion bill that they've had actually helps most of the departments, but actively avoid some of the issues around uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the State Department, a lot of the parts of government that deal with the southern border, because that's the sticking point of the bill. So now you're actually looking till March 28th, where some of the funding towards the actual defense side of the equations, and by the way, this extends to Ukraine, Israel, other parts of the world that require American aid as well. That's where you start to have the sticking point. Now, this government shutdown only is averted till September 30th, and then you have this problem again. And then my favorite fun fact of this entire election is that the first thing on the docket of the new president, January 2025, is Mm. dealing with the debt ceiling. And that's actually where Nikki Haley is really coming out on top because she's really leading with this idea of getting U.S. finances back on track in a way that Joe Biden and President Trump just aren't talking about. Okay. Kirti Gupta, you've got our vote. Credit for president. You heard it here first. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for talking us through all of those many and varied stories coming out of the US. Yeah, I'm glad that we've taken a moment to reflect on politics across the pond because it gives a bit of perspective on our own politics in the UK, which often seems to be totally chaotic. Well, at least it's the same over there. <laughs> Comforting in a strange way. But next, the gender pay gap has widened in the UK, and this is according to figures from PwC. Men now earn 14.5% more than women, a slight increase from last year. It means the UK, though, has slipped from 13th to 17th place in the pay equality rankings. This is the largest annual fall of any of the 33 OECD countries that have been measured. So what's going on? Joining us to sift through the data is our business reporter, Sabah Meddings. Sabah, this is depressing, really depressing. What's gone so wrong? It is It is very depressing, and it's this age-old topic that keeps coming up. We don't really seem to be getting any better. Um, if we think about the youth specifically, they talk about more women perhaps working part-time, um, taking on a higher share of childcare responsibilities. But the really worrying um, stats I sort of picked out and thought about was, um, you know, when a woman starts her starts her career um she may be paid 5.2 percent they say less than a man of um in an equal job but as, as she goes through perhaps has a child that gap widens and then again um at the age of 46 and above perhaps 
she might go through the menopause and again um, have her work affected and the gender pay gap gets even wider then. So really by the by retirement, it does look quite grim. Yeah, it does. And, and I mean, the, the, the evolution here is also the trend of the fact that it's getting worse over time is also something particularly worrying because there have, at least in, in name, been initiatives to try and address some of this. Yeah, I mean, everyone... I think any parent you speak to would grumble about the cost of childcare in the UK. It, I mean, it, it's astronomical. Um, you know, there are some people are working that, you know, it might cost more to work than, you know, work full time and then um, have to pay childcare costs as well. Um, there's also, you know, are we doing enough about um, equal maternity paternity leave for both parents um are women supported back into the workplace um is there flexible working you know and there's this other point as well that men perhaps have more time you know if women are doing more of the childcare responsibilities for so-called greedy jobs um these jobs that take a bit more time you might have to work into the evening um and perhaps you know if, if women are doing more of the childcare responsibilities men have then got more time to gobble up those jobs and um yeah I'm trying to find some bright spots in all of this. Is any is any is there any likelihood or how much is it down to the pandemic? You mentioned women working from home more, taking on childcare responsibilities. How much do you think that this is all a hangover from when we were locked down and might actually go away? Well, I mean, there are obviously um, efforts afoot to try and improve um, the outlook for parents with childcare. Um, how much is pandemic related? I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe people started working from home more um, and then maybe some jobs don't perhaps allow that. Everyone's being sort of encouraged to go back to the office. Is that making it worse for some parents? But it, it, yeah, it's quite tricky to say. So it sounds like childcare really is the key issue in this. There's also the broader question of trying to get more people into the labor force and more women in particular how do you you know how, how can those challenges be addressed I mean yeah it's no it's no surprise that um, skills is, or you know childcare workers people working in nurseries is, has been a real problem and also some of the financial challenges that these businesses I mean they are businesses have been a um, have been facing whether it's kind of minimum wage increases um, their own rising costs we've had energy bills you know it has really been a perfect storm for lots of these businesses and we've seen business failures in that sector um, and all of this just pushes the price higher um, for people and adds to that whole childcare challenge. Okay, well, Sabar Meddings, you have thoroughly depressed me. Our business reporter, Sabar Meddings, we thank you. Well, that is it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Chris Pitt and James Wilcock. And our audio engineer was Sean Guastamacchia. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll. We'll be back tomorrow with full coverage of the results of the Rochdale by-election. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.